My name is Alan Carr. I'm pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Lenore, North Carolina. Thank you for visiting our webpage and for taking the time to listen to one of our sermons. We hope this sermon, which was preached in our pulpit, will be a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord and help you grow in your understanding of God's Word. God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of the Word of God. Book of Haggai, chapter number 2. Again, if you don't know where to find Haggai, you can look in your table of contents in your Bible. It'll tell you the page number, or you can just start at Matthew, go backwards, you'll go Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. It's right there. If you hit Zephaniah, you've gone too far. So it's not hard to find. Third from the end in the Old Testament. We've been in the book of Haggai for the last three Sundays. This will conclude our time in Haggai today. And uh, I, for one, have enjoyed studying this little book. Talking about the time is now. That's what was going on there. God was calling his people to stand up and do the work of God now. Not tomorrow, not later, but do it now. And uh, God help us, that's what we need to be doing. It seems that everything in the world has taken the place of God's work in most of our lives. And uh, he needs to be our first priority. And when he isn't, he has divine ways of getting our attention. And you don't want God to have to do that. You'd be a whole lot better off if you would yield to him and let him have his way in you instead of uh, forcing the issue. God has ways of getting your attention that you haven't even contemplated. But he will do it if he needs to. And that's what he did with these people. He got their attention, they got busy doing the work, and the Lord began to bless them again. And uh, certainly if we want the Lord's blessing on our lives, on our church, we need to be busy about God's business as well. Amen? Everybody found Haggai? Haggai chapter 2, and we're going to read verses 20 through 23 and talk about those verses a little bit today. So if you have your place and you're able, I ask you to stand for just a moment in honor of God's word, Haggai 2 and verse number 20. It says, And again, the word of the Lord came unto Haggai in the four and twentieth day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth, and I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, and I will overthrow the chariots and those that ride them, And the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, saith the Lord of hosts, will I take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet. For I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. As you can see, this is the final section in the book of Haggai. And in this passage, Haggai delivers his final sermon. Now, the book of Haggai really is composed of four separate sermons preached by the prophet on specific dates which are given in the text. In his first sermon, which we studied in Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 15, Haggai challenged the people of Israel to get busy with the task of rebuilding the temple. They had neglected the rebuilding project for 16 years, 
And Haggai tells them they're suffering financially and materially because they've placed their own business ahead of God's business. And God has used financial hardship, crop failure, and other, and other things to get their attention and draw them back to Him. In his second sermon, found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, Haggai preached to the people about their discouragement. In response to his first sermon, they had begun rebuilding the temple, but it was obvious to them the new temple would be less than the old temple built by Solomon, and they became discouraged in their work, and they were ready to give up. But God promises His people He will provide the materials and everything they need to get the work done, And he also promises them that in the end, the new temple will be more glorious than Solomon's temple. Then the last message we studied in Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19. Haggai preached to the people about the matter of holiness. He challenged them to consider the chastisements of God they had faced because of their sin. And then he tells them that God intends to bless them because they're now engaged in carrying out his will. They're rebuilding the temple, and God is pleased by what they are doing. Now, in this fourth and final sermon, Haggai preaches directly to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. He doesn't speak to the nation as a whole, but he has a message for the man he has chosen to lead the people of God during a very trying and dangerous time. This message was preached on the same day as the previous message preached by Haggai, and it was December the 18th, 520 B.C. And he preaches a message which gives some divine declarations concerning both the present and the future. Now, this prophecy, to my mind, is like one of those old collapsible telescopes. You've kind of seen those, right? It's a compressed telescope. You pull it out, you extend it, and you look through the little end, and your vision comes out the large end, and you can see things which are far off. What we have here is a collapsed prophecy, in that part of this prophecy is fulfilled immediately in the life of Zerubbabel, but a portion of it will be fulfilled somewhere down the road. So part of it comes to pass now, part of it comes to pass later. It's a compressed prophecy, but if you extend it out, you see both the short-term view and the long-term view. That's what you have in this prophecy. Now what I want to do is take these final words of the prophet Haggai, and I want to share with you the declarations he shares with Zerubbabel, because what the prophet has to say to the governor has something to say to us as well. So let's talk about these divine challenges, and let these challenges from God, or these declarations, challenge and encourage your heart today. Now notice the first one. In the first one, found all the way through this passage, verses 20 through 23, there is a declaration of dominion. Now you'll notice in verse 20, this passage opens with these words. And again, the word of our Lord came unto Haggai. The word of our Lord. For those who've been here on Sunday evenings, we've been talking about the names of God. And along the way, we have talked about that word Lord. It translates the Hebrew word Yahweh. And as we've learned, the name Yahweh is God's personal name. It is a name that declares His very essence. It declares God to be the living one, and it declares Him to be the source of all life. It reveals God to be the self-existent one. 
Yahweh declares us to us that God is eternal, that He is the creator of all things, and He is the giver and sustainer of life. What I really like about that name Yahweh is that Yahweh reminds us that our God is a God who makes and keeps covenant with His people. Now in this last prophecy, Haggai comes to Zerubbabel with a direct word from the mouth of Yahweh. Think about that. The sovereign God of the universe has something to say to this human governor. And this prophecy comes from the very seat of eternal power. And thus it comes with divine authority. And every word Haggai is about to deliver is accurate and will come to pass in the Lord's time. In fact, everything God ever said in His book will happen as God has said it will happen. And so what I want you to understand from this is that when we hear the word of the Lord, when you hear God speak in His Word, you can take what God says to heart. Because the psalmist tells us that God has magnified His Word above His name. What that means is the very name and reputation of God stands or falls upon the accuracy of the Word of God. So when God makes a prophecy, that prophecy must come to pass, or God has lied. When God makes a promise, that promise must be fulfilled or God again has told a lie. But there's something God cannot do. God is not like us. God does not break His word. God does not go back on what God says. In fact, Moses said in Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that He should lie. God's not like us. He doesn't fail in what He says He will do. At the end of that verse, it says, Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Now these verses and others teach us the same truth. God is as good as his word. Everything he has said he will do, he will do. And every prophecy God has made will come to pass. Now with that little thought in mind, If you'll take a second and look at the four verses we've read today, six times in this text, God says either I will, will I, or will. And what God is doing is making some divine declaration. God wants Zerubbabel to know some specific events which will come to pass in the Lord's time. And when God is ready, everything God says will happen is going to take place. Now, I need to say this to you. The God we serve is a sovereign God. Some places I preach, in fact, this past week I was in a setting where some folk would disagree with me about some aspects of the sovereignty of God, and some of the preachers down there are afraid to use the word sovereign. I wasn't afraid to use it there. I'm not afraid to use it here. Our God is a sovereign God. And when we say God is a sovereign God, what we mean is is that God has absolute control over all the events of time and eternity. God controls everything. The movement of every atom in the universe is under God's control. Every nanosecond of your life is managed by Him. 
There are no surprises with God. There are no accidents with God. God has never experienced a duh moment. God controls everything. Now I'm going to run through a few verses here real quickly so I can get on with the message. I'm just trying to, in this first part, encourage you to believe God and take God at His word. If God says it, you can take it to the bank. And what God says He will do, God has the power to bring to pass. Notice this, Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heaven. He hath done whatsoever He hath pleased. I love that. God does what God pleases to do. I'm going to read an excerpt from this Isaiah 46 passage. God says, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. And then He says, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. I like that. Psalm 135, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did He in heaven, in earth, in the seas, and all deep places. In other words, nowhere is off limits to the sovereign power of God. He controls all things everywhere. Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What doest thou? God does as he pleases in heaven and in earth and everywhere in between. And the last one, Ephesians 1.11, the Bible tells us in the latter part of that verse, He worketh all things according to the counsel of His own will. And these verses simply remind us that our God has sovereign power over all things. And I'll tell you this, the writer said in Hebrews 6.18, it's impossible for God to lie. Titus said in Titus 1-2 that God cannot lie. And Jesus himself said in John chapter 17, verse number 17, Thy word is true. So I encourage you this morning to believe your Bible. Every word is the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. It is God-breathed. You can count on it. You can believe it. And everything God says in this book is true. Every promise He will keep, every prophecy He will fulfill, it is a dependable word. So I want you to understand here before we really dig into this, that God is in control of all things and God never lies. And what God is about to say to Zerubbabel will come to pass, and what He says to to us will come to pass as well. Our God reigns, and He can be trusted. God holds absolute dominion over all creation, and God's Word is trustworthy. So, not only do we see a declaration of dominion, by the way, let me just interject this. I'm glad God is in control. I'm glad God is a sovereign God. I'm glad this thing is not up to me that my life is not a series of accidents and uh, karmic events, but I'm glad God is sovereignly directing the path of His children 
and that He stands by His Word always. God has absolute dominion over everything. So, there is a declaration of domination. But notice in verses 21 and 22, there is a declaration of devastation. Now, these verses are sobering verses. Because what we have here is a promise of absolute destruction. You'll notice there in verse number 20, verse number 21, God says, I will shake the heavens and the earth. The word shake there means to quake or tremble. God says, I'm going to shake everything you think is steadfast and sure. The earth will shake, the heavens above will shake, everything in my universe will tremble. And this is the image of a field of wheat being uh, being driven about in the face of a strong wind. God said, I'm going to shake or make to quiver and tremble the heavens and the earth. Then in verse 22, he says, I will overthrow the throne of kingdoms. The word overthrow means to overturn. The little phrase throne of kingdom there refers to the totality of the human political system. What Haggai is saying is there's coming a day when God will overturn every kingdom developed, controlled, and dominated by mankind. God is going to destroy this human political system. Then he says in verse 22, he will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen. The word destroy there means to completely annihilate, to exterminate, or to demolish all the power and the pomp and the glory of the kingdoms of humanity will be completely annihilated by God when this prophecy is fulfilled. Then the remainder of verse 22, Haggai says that all the soldiers who fight for their human overlords will be defeated and God will cause the armies of men to destroy one another. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a devastating prophecy. If you think about what Haggai said, he's telling us that one day all of those who rebel against the dominion of God in this world will be utterly and completely swept away. When this prophecy is fulfilled, everything made by man will cease to exist. Every kingdom will fall and every army will be destroyed. Think about that. Every great city, Every towering building, every inspiring monument, every fine home, every amazing invention made by man will be wiped out of existence. And all traces of man's power, pride, and rebellion will vanish under the tide of God's just wrath. You think about that. That is a scary thought. Washington, D.C., New York City, Paris, Rome, London, all gone. The Washington Monument, the Eiffel Tower, the Roman Colosseum, the Tower of London, Mount Rushmore, the Empire State Building, all of these things which are heralded as achievements of mankind's possibility are all gone. Closer home, Walmart, gone. McDonald's, gone. Chick-fil-A, gone. The Waffle House, gone. Everything built by man will be wiped out. My home, gone. Your home, 
gone. Every evidence we existed will be wiped off the face of this earth someday. Many years ago, an 18th century poet by the name of Thomas Gray wrote a long poem called Written in a Country Churchyard. I'm going to read you one stanza, stanza 39 of that poem. He writes this, The boast of heraldry, the pomp of power, and all that beauty, all that wealth e'er gave, awaits alike the inevitable, inevitable hour. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. The paths of glory lead but to the grave. What he's telling us is echoing what Haggai said. All the power, pomp, and pride of mankind will end in one place. It will end in a graveyard. It does not matter what you achieve in this life. One day you will die, and nothing to show you have been here will remain but the grave where they place your body. That's a morbid thought, but it's true. In the end, we all die, and the eternal God still reigns. And one day, God will wipe this world away, from the will wipe away all the evidence of mankind's dominion on, over this earth, when God exerts His dominion over creation and all its inhabitants. When He does, all the evidences of man's power and accomplishment, all the evidences of his pride and rebellion against God, will be forever erased from the universe. It is a prophecy of absolute and total devastation of the kingdoms of this world. Isn't that a blessing on a Sunday morning? But notice this. I want you to see this. 1 John 2.17. He says, The world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But watch this. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. John is telling us this world will not last forever. But those who do the will of God will abide for eternity. Now with that in mind, listen to this sobering statement from Jesus. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now watch the next phrase. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied or preached in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now look closely at the first part of that quote up there. In verse 21, Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. You know what he's saying there? He's saying simply this, not everybody who professes to believe in Christ really believes in Christ. Not everyone who names Him as Lord is truly saved by His grace. Jesus said those people will not get into the kingdom of heaven. But He says those who do the will of His Father are those who will get in. Now, Jesus is not preaching a works-based salvation. But I want you to take your Bible. This is a lengthy passage. I didn't want to take the time to, or space to put it up. 
I want you to turn to John chapter 6 just for a moment. Indulge me. I don't ask you to turn often. If you will, turn to John 6. Jesus said, those who do the will of His Father are those who will make it to heaven. But what is the will of the Father? What is God's will for you and me? How do we get in to the kingdom of heaven? John 6, 37. Look at this. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me will I no wise cast out. Verse 38. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. Verse 40. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one here it is, which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus tells us right there two items that are definitely God's will. The first one is, is that all those who come to Christ by faith, He will lose none of them. Everyone He saves, He keeps, and He secures them for eternity. The second part of God's will is found in verse 40. All those who see the Son, that doesn't mean you have to see Him Physically, and that day they could, today you and I can't. We see Him and the Spirit of God opens our understanding, quickens our spirit, regenerates us, if you will, and allows us to see Jesus for who He is. We see Him. We understand that He is the Son of God. We understand that He died for our sins on the cross, that He was buried and that He rose again. And then verse 40 says, and believeth on Him. That is, we by faith look to Him as the sole hope of our salvation. That is the Father's will. That we see who Jesus is and that we believe on Him. And when we do that, we are guaranteed entrance into heaven. I say when we do that, it's really something God does in us. He bursts it in our hearts. He allows us to see Him. He gives us faith to believe. And when we look to Jesus for salvation, He delivers us from the wrath of God and He saves us from that which is to come upon this world and from facing His wrath in judgment. What I want to say to you today is that Jesus Christ is the only hope any person has of missing the wrath of God whether it's hell at the end of this life or whether it's the day of God's wrath when it consumes this world. Jesus is the only hope we have. You remember that old song that came out? Some of y'all aren't old enough to remember it. But I remember it. They used to play it on the radio. And it went something like this. I'm not going to sing it. You'll thank God for that. But it says, me and Jesus have our own thing going. Me and Jesus, we got it all worked out. Me and Jesus have our own thing going. We don't need anybody to tell us what it's all about. I'll tell you, if you got everything worked out with Jesus, guess what? You're wrong. You can't base your hope of salvation on what you've worked out with Him. 
Because this isn't something you work out. Let me tell you what Jesus said about this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you want to miss the wrath of God, eternity in hell, damnation and separation apart from God Almighty, you must repent of your sins. You must believe that Jesus is the only way to God, that Jesus is the the only truth there is, that He is the source of life, and you come to Him by faith, believing that He died for your sins and rose again from the dead, and God will save you and open a way for you to enter into the Father's presence. What I'm saying is, there's coming a day of wrath when this world will be destroyed. Many of us will not be around when that day comes if God doesn't do it quickly. Chances are you and I will die before that day comes. Now we may not, I don't know. But I do know this, if you die, you still have to face the wrath of God unless you're in Jesus Christ. You need a relationship with Him. How does that happen? That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The only path of escape we have is Jesus Christ. He is the only way out. He is the only hope. You say, preacher, that is too narrow for our day. I guarantee you, the world doesn't like it. Most lost folk don't like it because the majority of people, maybe some sitting in this room, they think they're okay. They think everything's fine. And they're comparing themselves with someone who is worse than they are. And they say, well, compared to that guy, I'm doing pretty good. And besides, me and Jesus got our own thing going. God's going to accept me because my good works are going to outweigh my bad works and He's going to let me into heaven. No, sir. No, ma'am. If you're trusting that, you will die and you will go to hell. I'm not trusting what I do. I'm trusting what Jesus did. He paid my price. He satisfied God's wrath concerning me. He settled my debt. The wrath of God has been taken away. And according to Scripture, I'm accepted in the Beloved because I'm in Him. God accepts me and there's a place for me in glory. I hope you're in Him too. And if you're not in a faith relationship with Christ, you need to be. And if He's drawing you to that, that I encourage you to believe Christ and be saved. Amen? And you don't have to wait till I'm finished. You don't even have to do it down here. You can do what you need to do where you are. If God is turning your head toward Christ, loosen your neck and let Him show you. And when He shows you, you'll believe and you'll be saved and the wrath of God will be taken away from you and you'll become a child of God. And I praise God it's that simple. God does it. It's a divine encounter, a divine conversion, a new birth that is initiated and carried out by the power of God alone. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Notice not just a declaration of dominion and a declaration of devastation, 
But I want you to move into verse 23 with me, and there is a declaration of determination. Now, we might read verse 23 and think there's nothing in there for us. God says, in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, I will take these Zerubbabel, that name's hard to say, by the way, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, saith the Lord, and will make thee as a signet, for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, God closes this message with a, with a word of comfort to Zerubbabel, the governor. And God tells him, he will make him a signet, for I have chosen thee. Now, most of us aren't familiar with the concept of a signet. And what he's talking about there is a signet ring. And perhaps the closest contemporary illustration I can give you would be like an identification badge that allows a person to access areas where other folk cannot go. If you ever go down to the hospitals or in some government buildings, you'll know there are certain rooms that have electronic locks on them. And unless you've got the right identification, you can't get in. And you watch someone walk up and they'll take their little card and they'll lay it across that sensor and the door will open and they can access that because they have a right to be there. A signet ring functioned in somewhat the same way. The signet ring was worn on the hand of a monarch, a king, and it allowed him to affix his seal to official documents. He would take that ring and press it into soft wax. The wax would harden into an unbreakable seal, and it carried his mark, and it made it official, all right? And so this was more than just a decorative ring like most of us wear. It signified honor. It signified authority, ownership, preservation, power, special relationships, personal guarantees of safety. It never left the hand of the king, and it was always there ready for his use whenever he desired. Now, why would God tell Zerubbabel that he has made him his signet? Why would God say, you're like the signet ring on my hand? I'll tell you why this was important. Zerubbabel had a grandfather by the name of Jeconiah. Jeconiah was also called Jehoiachin. Sometimes these folk in the Bible have a couple of names referenced to them. And many years earlier, Jeconiah was one of the last kings of Judah before they were exiled into Babylon. Now he was a wicked king who did not serve the Lord. And in Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-four, 24, here's what God said. God said, As I live, saith the Lord, though Coniah, which is, which is Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee thence. God said, You've been my king, you've been my signet, you've had my authority, but God said, I'm taking you off my finger, and I'm laying you aside. You will no longer be my signet. You will no longer be the man I use. God says, I will use you no longer. And then God sent us Jeconiah to captivity in Babylon. And as far as we know, he never returned to Israel. So God took him off his finger and set him aside. Then God said this, Write ye this man childless, talking about Jeconiah, a man that shall not prosper in his days. Now watch this. For no man of his seed shall prosper, sitting upon the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. So Jeconiah is told 
that he will be punished and all of his descendants will be punished as well and none of them will sit upon the throne of David. Are you with me? But now God comes to Jeconiah's grandson Zerubbabel and he says to them, I will make thee as a signet. Do you see God's grace at work here? God had pronounced a curse on his grandfather. But because of Zerubbabel's faithfulness, the curse on his family has been lifted, and God has taken that signet and put it back on his right hand. God said, I'm going to use you again. I'm going to make the other right. I'm going to make something out of you. I'm going to use you. Now, here it is. God had determined that he was going to use Zerubbabel, and nothing would deter God from executing his will. Now, here's something to note. Zerubbabel never did sit upon the throne. He was governor, but he never became king. He was the man who should have been the rightful king of Judah, but he never became king. But guess what? His name is mentioned in Matthew chapter 1, verse number 12, as one of the distant ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Zerubbabel never made it to the throne, but his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson did. Because many hundreds of years later, a baby was born in Bethlehem who was the lineal descendant of Zerubbabel and he was God's true signet ring. Watch this. And the Lord God, this is Luke 1, 32, 33, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. So God closes this book with a word of encouragement to this human governor, Zerubbabel, and God says, I've chosen you, you are my signet, I will keep you close to me, and I'm going to use you for my glory, because I have chosen you. Now there's encouragement in that for us. I'm not God's signet, and you're not God's signet. Christ is God's true signet, but every one of us who know Him are in Him today, and God has promised that He will use those who place their lives in His care. So I encourage you, look to Christ and be saved. After you are, and if you are, yield all you have and are to the Lord, and like an ancient king, use that signet ring to accomplish His will. God will use you for His glory in this world. And here's what we need to do. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable in the unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Zerubbabel yielded himself to God, and God used him, and God said, I'm going to make something out of you, and I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to lift the curse. And all of those who descend from you will be used by me. And that's what's happened to us, man. We got taken out of Adam and we got put in a new family. We are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Zerubbabel, and Jesus Christ. And we are in him today and God will use us if we make ourselves available. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an exciting time to be serving the Lord. Because the kingdoms of this world are being shaken. God is still using His people for His glory. God is still fulfilling His word 
And He's still saving souls by His grace. So child of God, be encouraged in the Lord. God has a word for you in His book. Read His book. Believe His book. Trust in His sovereign power. Yield to Him and know that if you're in Christ, you are saved from the wrath to come. And God will use you and bless you while you are here. And if you are His, yield yourself to Him and let God have His way in your life. But lost friend, listen. Your world's getting ready to be shaken to pieces. Whether this, whether this day of devastation happens in your lifetime or not, I cannot say. But I know this, someday under the deluge of the awful wrath of God, you're going to face Him. And you better, you better be in Christ when you do. Because if you are not in Christ, you will face not a God of love, not a God of grace, not a God of mercy, but a God about whom it is said, it is an awful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You will face a God of wrath and a God of judgment who will consign you to hell. Sad but true. In truth though, you consigned yourself to hell. Because God has offered you a way out. God has shown you an open door. And His name is Jesus. Go to Him and be saved and miss the wrath of God. But you know what's so cool about it? Not only do you not have to go to hell, but you get to enjoy His presence all the way home. That's the sweetest part about being a Christian. I'm glad I don't have to go to hell. I'm glad I'm going to heaven. I'm grateful my sins are gone. But what a joy it is to know that He walks with me, He hears me when I pray, He takes care of my life, He is a precious, wonderful Savior, and I commend Him to you. If you don't know Him, you need to meet Him. Jesus is a good man to know. I promise you. He's a life changer. Soul saver, eternity alterer. He is Almighty God. And He says to you, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And guess what? The time is now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Come to Him if He's calling. You have been listening to a sermon from Calvary Baptist Church. Thank you for taking the time to visit our webpage today and to listen to our sermon. Please check back often for new content. We'd love to have you visit with us at Calvary Baptist Church. The church is located at 1369 Blowing Rock Boulevard Northwest in Lenore, North Carolina. Our Sunday morning worship begins at 11 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m., and Wednesday night at 7 p.m., and you would be welcome at any of our services. Thanks again for listening, and may the Lord bless you is our prayer.